0: in the Word of God tonight to the Gospel of Matthew and the sixth chapter. We're now moving, at least in overview, into the territory, verse 9, down to the verse 15, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. So, we'll read verse 9 only again. After this manner, Therefore pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name." Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, again we look to Thee. We pray for Thy help and Thy blessing upon the Word tonight that I will clear our minds of every other competing thought and every other thing that has been occupying our thoughts and our considerations today. And we ask that I will grant us a clear focus on what God the Holy Spirit will want to say to us through the printed page tonight open my eyes. The hymn writer said, Illumine me, Spirit divine. And we ask that that's exactly what will happen now as we come to Thy wonderful truth. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. There is, I believe, a link between the man who was sick of the palsy, and we know the story of him very, very well, and are praying. The link between these friends that brought him along, and as we come to supplicate God's throne. We have four friends, and they were carrying him to where the Lord was, and we know the difficulty and the hindrances and the obstacles that they encountered en route. But they believed in the power and in the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they'd never have done what they did. They would never have picked him up in the first place and persevered when they saw all of the obstacles on the way to Jesus Christ. But of course, they had a problem. The problem was how do we gain access to Jesus, and how do we reach his presence. And maybe that's our problem, or part of our problem, even a good part of the problem that we encounter. And many times I'm convinced that it is. How difficult it is to get right through into the very presence of God when we pray. And like those four friends, we are using our elbows and we're struggling and we're tussling with all kinds of distracting thoughts, a whole crowd of them, and worldly cares. And even of sinful desires, the devil will use anything and everything to get us away from the place that we have covenanted to be with God, the place of communion, and the place of crying upon His name. How difficult it is. To realize as we pray the terms that we have in Hebrews 11 and the verse 6 that God not only exists in the way in which the Bible says that he does exist but that he exists in the power of an endless life he exists as the mighty God he exists as the king of kings, the Lord of Lords he exists as the sovereign controller of this universe all specified in the word and he has brought this world out of nothing by his own power. But, not only does he exist in all of these manifestations of his person, but he also rewards those that call upon his name. He answers prayer in other words. Those who diligently seek him, those who are entering into the closet, as we've been thinking about over previous week, closing the door, praying to the Father which is in secret, as we remember the God that we have come to, He exists, can we also recall that He is the one who will reward those who diligently call upon His name. Many times it seems to us that we are having difficulty penetrating the clouds that are surrounding Him. We are having difficulty seeing His face in prayer. And that propels us back in the place where the disciples were. When in Luke eleven, the verse one, and that passage goes on to be a mirror image of what we're looking at tonight in Matthew six nine to fifteen. The Lord's Prayer is in Luke eleven as well. But those disciples, they were catapulted back into the arms of their Lord, and they were saying, in the middle of their need, Lord. Teach us to pray because we realize we don't know how to do it in the way that we should. We are not being as effective in prayer as we believe we could be, and as indeed we see the Lord Jesus Christ Himself was being. So teach us to pray. And our Lord, in answer to that cry, He gives them what we now term the Lord's Prayer, and that petition that we have here in our Bible reading tonight it Acts as an outline and as a pattern, as a tool, as a lever that brings us out of the sly of the spawn when we're struggling in prayer, brings us away from that trough of defeat and gets us right up the mountain to the top of that mountain, and we see answers to prayer coming through. Our larger catechism, always good to consult with that, And on the question 186, it asks, What rule hath God given for our direction in prayer? And in the context of where we are tonight, the answer is very interesting. The whole Word of God is of use to direct us in the duty of prayer, but the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which our Savior Christ taught His disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer and so in our catechism brought into being by those eloquent preachers of the word erudite scholars of the truth as it is in Jesus in their opinion we go to that prayer commonly called the lord's prayer and you will be directed there in the duty of prayer it's really like going back to school the teacher standing at the front the blackboard is filled with instructions Minds, fingers, and pens are being instructed to get ready here to learn and to write down what you are learning. And so, you can see what our Lord says in Matthew 6 and verse 9, after this manner, therefore pray ye. What we say, it's a template, it's a tool, it's an outline, it's suggestive as to those areas that need to be covered when we come to the throne of grace. On the surface, it's a rather simple and a standard prayer. Nobody will convince you or me that a child does not understand, by and large, all that the clauses in this prayer is setting out. And yet, on the other hand, while it is very simple, it is so profound that you can dive down into the depth, and you'll be shocked. You'll be keeping diving and diving, and you'll be thinking, where is the bottom of this? Because it keeps on going. It's pretty much unfathomable, and the scope of this prayer is so immeasurable that a Bible scholar could spend a long time studying these words. Tonight, first of all, we're looking at the structure Of this prayer, the structure of this prayer. So, what's its format? How is it made up? Well, we'll begin at the beginning, and we find that it begins with worship. In Matthew 6 and verse 9, after this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. And so the Lord immediately, in the first sentence in the prayer is being lifted up and worshiped. Not only that, it ends. Ends with praise. Drop down to verse 13. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Begins with worship, ends with praise, or it's bookended by notes of worship and praise. What happens in worship? To truly pray, our heart must be prostrate before God in adoration. Surely that is the way we pray. We don't, do we, just charge into the closet, slam the door... Then begin to fire out her needs like pulling the trigger of a semi-automatic or an automatic machine gun. And then we think, right, that's it, done, retire out of the closet. Put her feet up now on the sofa and expect the answers to those needs to come like parachute drops. Drifting down into the back garden right on target where we wanted them in the time that we specified. Now I know I'm stretching it when I describe it like that, but you know my meaning. An old hymn had the chorus, Majesty, worship His majesty. And we can sing that. But is that what we do when we come to God in prayer? Do we worship His majesty? Do we have this deep and driving concern that that is what we want to do? We're always guided greatly by those prayers that are recorded, and that's by design, of course, not accident, in the Scripture. They're written for our admonition, for our counsel, for our encouragement. And I'm thinking of Solomon's prayer, for example, in First Kings 8, the verse 22 to 25. And how does that begin? Very instructive. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, first words, Lord God of Israel, There is no God like thee, in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart, who hast kept with thy servant David, my Father, that thou promised him. Thou spakest also with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hand, as it is this day. Therefore now... Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father that thy promised him. So he begins by exalting the person of God, by looking to the promises of God and saying, every single one that he made has been fulfilled in my father David's life, and I am, Lord, hoping, praying, expecting on the basis of what has happened in the past. I'm expecting my prayer for the fulfillment of promises to me to be done also. Solomon, what about Jehoshaphat? We have his prayer outlined for us in Second Chronicles. The chapter 20, the verse 5 through to the verse 10, we read there, And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, How does he begin to pray? O Lord God of our fathers, art, not thy God in heaven? And rulest not thy over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel? And givest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever. And he goes on to recount, what God had done for them in the past. Where is he in prayer? How does he begin? He focuses on God's person. He then takes up the subject immediately after that of God's power. Then he goes to God's performances. So he's praising God all along the line here. And eventually he says... And the record of the prayer begins in verse 5. At verse 10, he begins to pray himself in terms of laying out his own peculiar petitions. And now he says, behold, Solomon began in worship. Jehoshaphat began in worship. Not only that, but look at Daniel. Another example in Daniel chapter 9. And the verse 3 through to the verse 7, Daniel says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and made my confession, and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him. So again, the person of God, followed by the promise of God, followed by the pity of God to them that love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Looking for the pardon of God, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which speak in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of our land. O Lord, righteousness. Purity belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day. Tell me, when did we last begin to pray like that? Spending that amount of time, that amount of effort, that concentration, getting his mind focused on the person of God to begin with. Do we pray like This. These are excellent examples that have been put down in Scripture that we may imitate when we come to the throne of God. And we do well if we mark these passages. Let's mark them. Let's read them again when we get home. Let's, when we come to pray again, keep them in mind and even pray up the prayers that were offered by Solomon, Jehoshaphat, and also by Daniel here. But the opening notes, everyone. Worship. It's such a good rule of thumb that before you begin to pray, before you get to any petition at all, that we pause and we ponder over who we are directing our requests to. Again, I'm referring to the larger catechism, this time, question seven. Who was God? An expansion on the shorter catechism answer, God is a spirit, we are told, in question seven, the larger catechism, the answer that appears there, God is a spirit, in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. All-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And if we could get that runway in place and come off that launching pad in terms of our prayer, if we would appeal to him in the proper fashion, that way it'll work out for his glory, and it will work out for our good. So it commences with worship. It concludes this prayer with praise. Drop down to verse 13 again, Matthew chapter 6, For thine is the kingdom the power, the glory forever. Amen. The kind of start to the prayers these men that we specified launched off in, the Lord's prayer comes back to, and it goes over those features of God again. Just as all true prayer must begin with worship, so it should end with praise and thanksgiving, with assurance, God has heard, and he has answered me. The ten lepers were healed by the Savior. One traipsed his way back and trotted out appropriate thanks. The other nine slipped away into the shadows. Never saw were heard tell of them again never came back to breathe even the faintest, most remote syllable of gratitude to the Lord who had healed them. But before we turn up our noses in indignation and tut, tut, tut about them and lambast them on account of their actions, let's turn the spotlight on our own hearts. Before we leave the closet, do we praise God, the one who's is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? I will enter his gates, the psalmist said, with thanksgiving in my mouth. I will enter his courts with praise. And yet, so often, that's the thing we fail to do. We forget as well to return and thank God when he answers prayer. So tonight, we are going to thank God for the mission that we've been praying for in Sandy Row last week, where children came in in great numbers, parents came in as well, and again this week, just concluding tonight, as you know, great number of children and a pleasing number of parents, new parents, people we have been meeting and talking to and encouraging and praying for, came in. Over 80 in total were in the building tonight upstairs, and we have reason to come back like that one leper. Lord, don't let me forget to acknowledge the goodness of God over these two weeks, because that has been outstanding. And maybe, maybe we're not getting extra answers because we have omitted this very thing to return and give thanks for the mercies already received. Think of the words of Psalm 50 and verse 23, they're full of pathos. Really, God's appeal to you and to me. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright, I will show him the salvation of God. We sang the hymn tonight in opening our meeting, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Back in 1834, Henry Francis Light, they also authored, Abide With Me. He published a hymn in his book, Spirit of the Psalms. He was ministering then in Brixham, fishing port in Devon. And actually, his hymn here, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, that day, that was sung by Queen Elizabeth at her wedding to the Duke of Edinburgh, the 20th of November, 1947. And on that day, quite remarkably. They've got their history sorted out, let me tell you. That very day, when she was married, when they sang this hymn, it was the day of the centenary of Henry Francis Light's death. Praise is my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet. Thy tribute bring ransom teal, restored, forgiven, who like thee? His praise should sing, praise him, praise the everlasting king, father like he tends and spares us, while our feeble frame he knows In his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes, praise him widely as his mercy flows. A gentleman worth a lot of money. But a stranger to God, stranger to grace, he was walking one evening through a section of his grounds, and he came near a mean hut. The poor man he knew lived in there with his large family. Curiosity stopped the rich man in his tracks, and he he listened to the voice coming out of that humble abode. It was a voice of prayer. The poor man was giving thanks with Findless affection and praise to God for the goodness of his providence, supplying them food to eat and clothes to wear and also everything that was necessary in life. They had, and he was praising God on behalf of his little large family in that little house that night. The rich landlord was confused, but he was also impressed. Does this poor man, he turned it over in his mind, who has nothing but the meanest of stuff, that everything he has, he has purchased by severe labor. Does he give thanks to God for his goodness to himself and to his family? And look at me, who enjoys ease and honor and everything that's pleasant and desirable, and I've hardly ever bent my knee or made any acknowledgement to my Maker and my Preserver. May we never be found in that man's shoes. The Lord's Prayer begins with worship, ends with praise, bookended by these things. That's the salient point about its structure. Then we think of the sequence of this prayer, the sequence, how it travels. You'll find six requests in the prayer, divided into two categories. The first category, there are three petitions concerning God, the Second category, another three petitions concerning ourselves. Listen to the first section, not that you don't know it, of course, you know it inside out, back to front. We realize that. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Three concerning God. Thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. Now, we know, let's back. To where the disciples were here. They came running to the Lord. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Here's the first set of lessons on the subject of prayer, and they're taught right at the beginning. Put the glory of God before everything else. Put God's interests above your own. Thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. Sometimes people are a little like Diotrephes in prayer. Who was Diotrephes? In third John, in verse 9, we read about him, very poor example in prayer. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. What we need always to remember is what is stated in Colossians 1.18. But he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, that includes our praying, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So I begin with him, I must. The proper order has to be thy name, O Lord, thy kingdom, O Lord, thy will, O Lord, and then... Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. God's glory, let's underline it, comes before our needs. The honor of God before the help of man. His praise before our provisions. So that basic rule must always be this first of all comes his will, his glory, his kingdoms, then our needs. And that's emphasized right at the end of the same chapter, Matthew chapter 6. We know the verse so well, verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Why should that be the order? Why should this be the sequence? Is God here jumping the queue? That would be a very irreverent thought. And of course he is not. When I come to pray, I need to remember that my prayer, the object, the reason why I am praying, is not to bend the will of God to my will, but to get my will in line with his. True prayer isn't putting God's arm up his back and overcoming his reluctance, but it's laying hold upon his willingness. Real prayer is not a case of persuading God to do something that's directly opposite to his will. He's not going to do that. It starts with adoration and with worship and with praise, with the prostration of my heart and my mind and my spirit before his throne in absolute surrender. And if I come there... I will be willing for His will because at that point, I will know it's going to be the best thing for me and for everybody else. Prayer is not primarily a tool for getting something done. It is expressing a concern for the glory of God. Now, I'm not saying, and you will know, week by week, we have a scream whereby we put up in the second place. A lot of physical issues, ailments. Should we pray for those? Of course we should pray for those. Absolutely. But if we only pray for those and for nothing else, and get stuck with the physical legitimate, though that is, James 5 and 14 tells us, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him pray for bodily sickness. Of course, we agree wholeheartedly with that. It's the Word. But what I'm saying is this, the greatest, deepest need of any assembly of God's people as they gather for worship is not that the Lord should, their greatest need, reach down and touch their bodies so much as He should break into their hearts, into their minds, into their souls by His Holy Spirit. The real need in every church, Lord's Day by Lord's Day is for a revelation of the glory of His person, of the power of His arm, and our meeting will pulsate with heavenly light. And every person present should be wanting God to be there. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after the O Lord. And that's how this prayer begins. His name put it before everything else. His interests, put those before everything else. His will, may that be our dominant control. Worship Him, and then come and intercede on behalf of the needs of others. What did Moses do? Moses 33 and verse 18, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. In Psalm 70, and the verse 4, David, a Psalm to bring to remembrance is what that Psalm is. Let God be magnified. John 12 and the verse 28, our Lord Jesus pleading to the Father, what does he say? Father, glorify thy name. First, glorify his name, then pray for our needs. So we have thought about the structure of the prayer, the sequence of the prayer. Finally, the spine of this prayer, the spine of this prayer, and we're only doing an overview of the Lord's Prayer here tonight, you'll find a striking contrast between the two main sections in the prayer. In the first part, verse 9 and the verse 10, those three petitions relating to God, notice the prayer moves from the inside to the outside, from the inward temple of our worship to the outward place where we're going to serve God. Our Father, which art in heaven, we're praying in the closet. Thy will be done in earth. Do something around us. Do something through us. Help us not only to supplicate, but to serve Thee. So we're moving from the inside to the outside. In the second section in the prayer, those are the matters that Will lie heavily naturally upon our heart physical material things we have prayer that is doing what? Moving from the outside to the inside it's reversed in the second section it's from the outward need of bread to the inward arena where there's a battle raging spiritual conflict is going on the devil is at us and so deliver us from evil From the outside, bread, to the inside. What's happening is this. In the first part of the prayer, three petitions. God is moving from heaven to earth. In the second part of the prayer, we move from earth through to heaven. That's what prayer is all about. But here's a glorious thought and wonderful truth. Dead center. We're using the word spine here. Spine of the prayer. What is the spine of this prayer? Dead center, what do we have? I'll tell you, we meet with the blood of Jesus. That's what we have dead center at the spine of the prayer. The blood of Christ. I don't see that. The central theme of the prayer. The phrase that stands out in the heart of it is, Lord, forgive us our debts. Forgiveness cleansing, pardon, atonement. You can't have that without the blood. Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There will be no forgiving of our debts. There will be no cleansing of our sins. And so right in the center at the spine of the prayer, we get to the cross. God moves earthward from heaven. Man moves heavenward. From earth, and we meet at the very heart of this prayer, on the only ground that any man, any woman can ever hope to meet his maker, meet his redeemer, on the ground that is stained red with the blood of the cross. The cry of the human heart rises out of the depths and goes to the throne. The blood is the backbone of our cry. Some people talk about, I wish that guy or that woman would grow a backbone, take a stand. Will we have a real backbone in this prayer? And it is the blood of Jesus Christ. I think of Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 20 having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest high by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and the word new there means effectively newly slain. In other words, the blood of Jesus is always fresh as powerful today as when it was shed for our sins on Calvary. And so, our way of approach is the same way of approach for all the generations of time, not without blood. Hebrews 9, the verse 7, sprinkled with reconciling blood, I dare approach thy throne, O God, Thy face no frowning aspect wears. Thy hand no vengeful thunder bears. Let me my grateful homage pay. With courage sing, with fervor pray. And though myself a wretch undone, Hope for acceptance through thy Son. So Christ is central in this prayer. And the petitions in the prayer are full of him from beginning to end. Now, I know that it may not seem that way in the surface, because people will say, well, you're talking about Christ being central here. He's not even mentioned in this prayer. And some people have taken it, shunted it out to the sidelines, deemed it irrelevant, not of great value, but of tremendous value, just as in the book of Esther. God isn't mentioned by name, but the book of Esther is full of God. It represents an outstanding, breathtaking display of His mighty providence and power. So this prayer, in which the name of Jesus Christ does not actually appear anywhere, it is still full of Him. From the first phrase, and this is all we'll say tonight on this one, from the first phrase of the petition, our Father, our Father, we realize right away, it's impossible to come to God as our Father until we are born into His family, high by faith in Christ. We can't say, Our Father, until we are born under the terms of John 1, verse 12 and 13, to as many as received Him, Christ. He's there. To them give He power to become the sons of God. Sons of God. Our Father couldn't use the term without Christ. Right to the very final word in the prayer. The last word, Amen, who is Christ, but the great Amen of God. That's one of His titles, one of His names. That's it. So, right through the prayer, as we will see, we trust in weeks that come, right through the prayer, from the starting point right to the end, we are in the presence of our Savior. He is central. Fill our prayers with Christ. Make it a blood steep. Christ-centered plea that comes out of our heart because that's what this prayer is and we can expect an answer.